then. Okay. So, just because I, I hear myself teaching and I think, I don't want you to think I'm angry. I'm not talking about this out of anger. I, uh, on any level, I'm just very passionate. I have always believed, and I continue to believe, most biblical counselors are one very persuasive author away from heresy because they don't know enough about the text to be able to evaluate a text to understand, is this author correct or incorrect? Is this true or not true? So I think that's one issue I always have. Another issue I have is that often you hear people say stuff and you say, where did that come from? What are you talking about? Why would you say that from that text? Or why would you say that from here or there? So this just becomes a real important issue, plus that Job text and the James text. So number three, let's talk about understanding the connection between exegesis. Exegesis means what is the meaning, application, and theology general. This is what I call the five circles of theology. It's not original to me. I actually received it from David Pallison way back in the way, way back in the day. Exegetical theology, that's the circle we start in, and it answers the question, what does the text say? Right? So in exegetical theology, what are we talking about? We're talking about subject, verb, what the words mean. Um that on that level, right? So what are adverbs, adjectives, prepositional phrases? How do they all connect? That type of thing. So exegetical theology is our primary passage. So what does the text mean or what does the text say? The next circle is biblical theology. And that begins with what does the text say? I put the put it up there because it doesn't all fit in here. In relationship to, and I give you four options over here. All right, so in relationship to the book, biblical theology looks at the development of a book's theology. So if I say, actually we did it earlier and you didn't realize it. When I was saying verses 2, 3, and 4 of James 1 is about God growing you into sanctification. And if you caught it, I skipped over to verse 18. That's biblical theology. It's a different paragraph, but it's very it's same context and very clear what God is doing there. So when we say, so what does this text mean in relationship to the rest of the book? Well, the rest of the book... It's very clear how 18 and 17 and 19 and 20 connect with 2, 3, and 4. When we were in 1 Peter, when I said, well, it's important to know the purpose of the book. Verse chapter 5, what did we determine? That was verse 12 or 13, I think. And I said, so it's to stand firm in grace. And then we have salvation, sanctifying grace, sustaining grace, shepherding grace. What am I talking about? That is biblical theology right you're looking at the development of your theology inside of the book itself the flow of the book what about the author 
Right. An example of that would be if Paul talks about the flesh, the word flesh. He's got about 62 other books, not quite that many, that we probably can consider. What does he say about the flesh in all of those places? Now, we can't just look for the word, though. What? When we get over there and we look at that word, what do we have to do? We have to do the whole process for that passage, too. Because just because the word is used doesn't mean it's identically used. In fact, that would be a really bad assumption to make. I remember uh, a dear friend of mine, he was a professor, and we were talking about what does the word ekklesia mean in the Bible, in the New Testament, and in the Greek Old Testament. And he said, well, all of the passages that are clear mean local assembly. And because they're clear in this number of passages, Anywhere they're not clear, you should assume it means local assembly too. No, 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 no. I love this man, dear man. But that's absolutely not true. It's not right. You can't assume something means it. You have to go into it and do the hard work of figuring out. Sometimes it means we're not sure. And we're not sure, so we're going to not use that text as probably part of our theology of this word. We're going to be very careful. We're going to be hold it loosely. So in relationship to an author, how about genre? That would be wisdom literature, right? If we're talking about the fear of God in Job 28, 28, that fear of God is going to be very similar on genre to Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1, 7. Job 28, 28 is a beautiful text. Uh, and it is helpful with Ecclesiastes 12, 13, right? So there's, when you're in the same genre, sometimes you can pick up some of those very similar themes. And then New Testament, Old Testament, right? The, there is a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament, how we handle it based on Christ. And so we want to be aware of those differences. Arguably... Um, yes, the Old Testament ends in Malachi, but really there's not a significant shift in theology until you get to Acts. Really, the Gospels, for the most part, you're reading them through the lens of the Old Testament, but now we have the Messiah there. That's a significant difference, but the understanding of theology is all Old Testament theology. Then you get to Acts, and everything shifts at the beginning. So, so that would be by testament, right? So biblical theology. Here's the third one. It's systematic theology. How does this text fit in my understanding of the rest of the scriptures? How does this fit in my understanding? <coughs> pardon me of the pardon me of the rest of the scriptures. So after we've looked at a passage and a variety of passages, now we consider what does the whole Bible say about this text? Or how does this text fit in with those? 
recall we have we talked about this the very first session last month. There are nine major hooks that we hang our theology on, that people hang their theology on. Doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of the Spirit, doctrine of man, doctrine of sin, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the church, doctrine of last things. Was anybody counting? That's I may have skipped one, but I think that's pretty much the nine. Those are all part of systematic theology. Next, we have what's called historical theology, and that answers the question, how have others thought about this text? Because we're not the first people to ever think about it. We have thousands of years of church history to help us think through particular passages. Then the final circle is practical theology, and that is how should I respond? Or so what? How should I respond or so what? With the goal of rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what we're hoping to do. Okay, so this is important, this step. You always begin in the circle of exegetical theology. Right? You always start with the text. You don't go backwards. Right, so you begin with exegetical theology, then you move to biblical theology. What does this mean in relationship to these other things? Then you move to systematic theology. Then you go to historical theology, and the final spot you stop is in practical theology. Right, That's our goal. We want to go the full five circles. Well, why do we want to do that? Because... We want this thing to be applicable. All right, we want the guy when you're driving across Santiago to look at you and say, that's simple. Why would he say it's simple? Hopefully because you said, what does the text mean? And you went through the hard work of figuring out, and when it means this, this is how it applies in your situation. And they're cohesive. Right? They make sense together. They're not scratching their heads saying, well, that doesn't make sense. Or they're not saying, well, I'm not sure what really the Bible says and what he was trying to say. Right, And again, I know I'm, I'm going to be very facetious and use the word wounded. I am very wounded from the 70s. I know that. I'm trying to keep balanced away from that. When people would get up and say that the Bible talks about hair, and tattoos. Although, a good verse on tattoos. I did find this one the other day. For those of you who need it. <laughs> Since we're in James. I think this is funny. James 1.27. Since we're talking about it. It says, pure and undefiled religion. 
before God and the fathers this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I think that's about tattoos. So I think... (laughs) Uh, Speaking of bad exegesis, that's... uh, Right, so we have to be careful, don't we? (laughs) So that is... Right, why did I come out of the 70s thinking that the Bible talked about hair, music, and tattoos when it didn't talk about any of those things? Right, so that's, I don't want any of us to ever counsel in a way where people would walk away and our opinion is what they've heard and not the Bible. And they don't know how to take the Bible then and apply it to their real situation. They've just heard what we think about it. So we want to be very careful. Let's talk about some, look at number four there, pitfalls to avoid. Pitfalls to avoid. We, <laughs> we have them down here. They're in your notes. Exegetical theology. I just gave you a great example. Right? Taking a verse out of context. Context is critical. Right? We don't want to take any verses out of context such that we've missed what the verse is saying. There's lots of examples I can use, many, from my own life as well as from others. I remember one time, and I don't have the King James, I have a new King James, so I may not be able to spot the verse. But I remember reading in Philippians 1, and I think it was in verse... He switch versions here. One second. I remember I was an RA, so this is back in the 90s. It was probably 1991. And what's it called? Is it called King James? There it is. And there were some guys, and they were talking very unrighteously. They were talking dirty on the floor. And it was I was supposed to give a devotion that night for, for the hall meeting. And I'm looking for the word. Oh, it's chapter 1, verse 27. So it says only let chapter 127 in new king james says only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i come and see you or am absent i may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for one faith of the gospel and he goes on from there so the text is only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel well in the king james that's translated this way only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. So I read that verse, and I waxed eloquently on why their conversation should be consistent with the gospel. Now you could say, well, you didn't say anything that's not true to the Bible somewhere. But the reality is it wasn't true to the Bible specifically, like I was saying, there. Right, The word conversation is the word citizenship, 
And so the New King James writers have appropriately called that conduct. Right? So I was the one wrong because I looked at an English word, thought I knew what it meant, and was frustrated with the way these guys were living in the dorm and what they were talking about. And so I misapplied it. Right? So that is taking a verse out of context. It's easy to do that. In fact, it happens often. Since we're doing examples, let me give you a couple. How about... <laughs> let me see if I know what this is. How about Second Chronicles 7, 14? That's a good election verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, I've heard that verse. I used to listen to the school's radio station on my way to Bass Pro, and I had to be at Bass Pro at 1230. And so I would leave the school on my way south because the headquarters then were down on Campbell. And every day, Bill Askew would come on. You knew it was 12 o'clock when a certain set, a bed of music would begin to play. And he would come on in his very distinctive voice. And he would say, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Pray for revival in America. He did that every day at noon. It was a set. I knew it was noon. I knew how where I needed to be on my way across town, right? Because that was an important moment. But that verse isn't talking about revival in America, right? So it's a verse, not that we can't pray for revival, but Second Chronicles has nothing to do with the United States. My people are not Americans. It doesn't relate to the election in the 90s, it certainly doesn't relate to the election in 2024, but that verse will be used over the next several months with regular frequency. What is that? It's out of context. Now, should we pray for our leaders? Yeah, maybe Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, right? There are texts that we could use to very much insist, let's pray for our leaders. Let's pray for us. There's a lot of verses that talk about that, but Second Chronicles isn't one of them, right? So it's taking a text, it's out of context, not that saying pray for your leaders is sin, but it doesn't, the Bible's not teaching it there. So I think there's lots of examples we could use. We were in James 1 earlier, right? James 1, 19, says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. <clears throat> What's that text talking about? It's not talking about your relationship with your roommate or your husband or wife or neighbor or employer. What's it? What it is saying is be swift to listen to whom? To God. 
specifically in the Bible, verses 20 through 27. About what? Your parosmoses in verses 2 through 18. Because God has given you those parosmoses to help you become like Jesus. It's part of the every good gift and perfect gift that's from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. So he says, be swift to hear God. Slow to speak what? Against God. That's why he's saying in verse 13, don't say when you're angry, when you're tempted, that God is the one who's tempted you because God's not the one making you sin. So get off your high horse of anger. Be slow to speak and slow to anger because your anger isn't going to produce what God wants to produce. What does God want to produce? Verse 18. He wants to make you a first fruit of his creature. Verse 4. He wants it to have its perfect work so you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So pray for wisdom. This text is not a text that at its meaning level is about when your spouse speaks to you, be sure to quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. A spouse is not related to in this text whatsoever. Now you could say, is it possible? Then we could use that with the counselee. Well, it's only possible if what? We explain the meaning first. You can't get to application, right? There's five circles. You can't get to the red, but you can't get to where you stop unless you start with where you start. So you have to explain the meaning first and say, this is just a fascinating text. Think, think through it with me. If God wants you in the middle of pressure-filled circumstances to be quick to listen to him, what's it mean to listen to him? Let's think through that. We'll have a talk. To be quick not to speak and to be quick not to anger. If all of that applies in a high-pressured situation with God, now just help me think through this. Do you think there's any way that that could apply to your pressured situations when you're talking to your spouse? Now, what have I done? I've put it completely in its context. My my. Counsel Lee does not think this verse is about marriage. But I've said to him, if this is true with God, first great commandment. Remember, this is the fifth question of those application questions. Do you think that there's something we could think about in terms of the way we might live out second great commandment? See how we've done, we did that? We were true to the meaning but yet we still got an application that might be that might fit depending on the circumstance with your counselee. Well, there's lots of these. Um, I'll give you one more just because I think about it. Um, oh, it's hard not to give you ten more. Just because I've been I've practiced bad exegesis so long. Psalm one twenty six. Is that it? Oh, yeah, that's it. So I've heard people preach verse five. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with them. 
And so they say, this was the app, this was the sermon. When's the last time you prayed for your city and cried for them? How often do you share the word? And are you expectantly waiting for God to bring the sheaves in of people getting saved in your community? I heard that. I was actually at a preacher's meeting. We immediately left there and went to a meal. And I bet 80% of the guys in that meal were saying to the man who just preached, that's one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. Challenged by it. And I'll be honest with you. I listened to the man's passion. I listened to the man's goal. I listened to his hope of evangelizing his city. And I also said, when's the last time I was heartbroken for my city? It's a great question to ask. But none of those things are in this text. So you say, could I respond even in my own heart of saying, Lord, would you help me do better with the gospel, better with the passion over my city? Could I ask that question? Yes, I could ask that question. And I could apply it because I know that guy had nothing less than a great desire for us to be burdened for our city. But Psalm 126, 1 through 6 is about Israel. And if we're going to jump to describing praying about evangelism, which he would say, sowing in tears. Then we've got to either make that very clear how we made that jump. Or possibly go to Matthew 28 and talk through the. Are we going teaching, pardon me, going, baptizing and teaching? And are you doing that passionately and a text that could fit? Right. So we have to be very careful. Right? It, just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's in the text. But as l- humble listeners, when somebody says something that challenges us, we need to be humble enough to receive it, hear their heart behind it, even if it may not be accurate in the text. Right? So I'm not saying it, that doesn't make it true, but it also puts us in the right spirit. Right? We shouldn't walk away criticizing. Let me give you one more, and then we've, we'll move to the next point. In 1 Kings, Okay, so in 1 Kings 18 and 19, you have Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. So he takes off running. You get through the text. You get to verse 11 of chapter 19, and it says then, so God is talking to Elijah. They've been talking. There's an angel involved as well. Uh So he says in verse 11, then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. I'm in verse 11. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice is what the King James translates it, a new King James. Other translations translate that word a wrestling or a stillness. So it was when Elijah heard it, what's he talking about? He's talking about whatever a still small voice is. When Elijah heard that, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood in the entrance of the cage and suddenly a voice came to him. This is our normal word for voice and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, I've heard many, 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 many sermons and advice say, listen to or for God's still small voice. Well, the word voice there isn't a voice. It's a quietness. It's like a breeze. It's a wrestling. It's you got to put it, understand the context. A great wind broke the mountain all to pieces. Elijah was outside. Now he goes deep inside the cave. Then an earthquake. Then a fire. Then nothing. It's just quiet. There isn't anything major going on. Everything is settling. A breeze may be blowing the dust out of the way. Right? Essentially, Elijah's inside. All of this is going on outside. And it gets quiet. So when it was that Elijah heard what? Heard that all that commotion was done. The word voice here, it means just a wrestling, right? Just hardly anything. He wraps his face in his mantle and goes out and he looks, goes out into the entrance of the cave. So what's going on? No more fire, no more earthquake. And then what actually happened? God spoke and he spoke not with a still small whisper. He spoke with his full voice. Elijah, what are you doing here? So a still small voice, again, I've heard sermon after sermon, go listen for God's still small voice. That's not a theology. It's a narrative and it's a misunderstanding of the word, a small wrestling. If a tornado comes by your house or a major storm and you're inside and you're in a tornado shelter and then you hear nothing, 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 what are you going to do? You're going to get up and say, well, let's go see what happened. Let's see if the storm's over. That's all that happened. But we're not putting our ear to the tracks, seeing if the Holy Spirit's trying to tell us something. Right? So it's a narrative. It's not theology. But it's bad theology when it's taken and it's taught in a way that's not consistent with even the larger text. When God speaks in this text, what? It says he uses a voice. And he speaks, and Elijah can hear it. It's very clear. So we want to just be careful, right? Don't take verses out of context. The context is helpful. Okay. What's another one? How about biblical theology? Crossing authors, genres, and testaments. 
Um, you can't. <coughs> so if you're in Peter, you can't jump into Paul and say, and the verse is here too. This word is here as well. Right. So if the word is flesh, let's say. And you have it in Paul, but the words also used in Peter. You can't jump between the two and assume that they're the exact same thing and just throw them out like, oh, yeah, here it is. And here it is as if they're co-equals. I am a thousand percent appreciative of John MacArthur's ministry. But if you've ever read a John MacArthur commentary, I would say this is the place where sometimes he trips. He'll see a word in the text and he'll begin in in Genesis and he'll follow that word all the way through the Bible. Where if we're not careful, we begin to think this word in this text means what all that means. It doesn't. It only has one meaning. Right, like in Ecclesiastes, you have the word, uh, uh, oh, my brain just went blank. I think it's cholam, uh, I think is the word. And it means darkness. But it has seven different meanings in different authors. So you can't just go to this one and say, what well, means this here, this here, this here, this here. It means all that here. No, it it has seven different nuances across the Old Testament. In Ecclesiastes, it only has one nuance. We've got to figure out what that nuance is. We've got to figure out what's he mean here. And if we can't figure it out, then we have to be a bit general and say, you know, there's a range of meaning here, but we're not sure. We can't say what we don't know. So we have to be careful to not cross authors, to not cross genres, to not cross testaments and make things co-equal that are not co-equal. Right? So we want to be careful there. Systematic theology. That's a system-driven interpretation. I implied it earlier when we were talking about something else, but in 1 John 1, First John 2, pardon me, in verse 2 when it says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, that's wrath-bearing sacrifice, And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Well, you know and I know that's the world of the elect. This is about limited atonement. Now, what would make us say that? Nothing in this text. That's having an opinion about atonement. And what do you do? You put that on top of the text and you say, well, because this is my theology, It must mean the world of the elect. It could mean nothing else. Why? Because my theology says that. That's just bad exegete. That's bad work. Instead, we have to say, no, we got to figure out what cosmos means here. What's it mean in this context? How does John use it? Seven different ways. What does he mean here? And then I say, so how do I need to change my theology? But my theology doesn't determine what it means in this text. Let's let's go back to the guy when we were talking about Ecclesia earlier. He would say, well, our theology is we have a strong view of the local church. Therefore, over here in Ephesians, when the local church isn't mentioned in Ecclesiology or in Colossians, then you have to take this and 
Of course it's the local church. Why? Because that's all it means. That's taken your theology and you forced that on a text rather than saying, or we need to take our theology and nuance it because this text isn't quite what you say your theology is. Makes sense? You have to let your theology come out of a text, not your text. Pardon me, your theology force its way so that you could say nothing but it, but that. So I think First John or chapter First John two two is a great example of that. Um, sins for the whole world, in the context I would say means the whole world of believers and unbelievers. It doesn't mean only the world of the elect. So we have to want to be careful there. What about historical theology? Well, the problem is you can depend too much or too little on it. Let's be honest. Reformers, you have more information than any of those guys. You have more everything. Just buy one version of Lagos and you have more everything. Right? So you say, well, this is what John Calvin said, or this is what Luther said, or Zwingli, or your reformer of choice. Or this is what this Puritan said. As gracious as possible, who cares? They're just a person. Just like you. They have just as much. You have more than they had. They may have spent more longer in the text. They may have written more. But you and they, you're very similar. The Spirit didn't do anything for them that He can't do for you. So to... Right, I have got, <clears throat> pardon me, people who become experts in just a sliver of the Puritans or a sliver of the Reformers. Bless God, they're just people. I had a, a good dear friend of mine just wrote um, his entire PhD dissertation on the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Who is that? Who? John Newton. He just wrote his entire PhD. He spent years in Newton. Just years. My friend's a smart guy. I like him. Every time you're around him, he's talking about, yeah, Newton just said this. Newton said that. So what? I appreciate you telling me, but really, so what? I don't tell you everything Jay Adams said because you don't care. I don't care what everything John Newton said. If I were writing a paper on it, I would care, but I'm not. Right, and this is my dear friend. Right, I love you, my friend, but really, we don't need to know what Newton said about everything. You didn't either, but you did get your degree. So now that you know it, shake his hand and walk away from him because he's just a person. So if you never think about historical theology, that's a mistake. Why? Because other people in the past have fought hard over some passages. So let's know, usually a good study Bible will tell you what that passage is. You can find it and say, oh, I need to be careful here because it looks like for a century they killed each other over this. That's probably good to know. So you don't want to ignore it, but you don't want to worship any part of historical theology. right? There's a balance to it. What about practical theology? Two things, making applications that are not congruent with the rest of the process, right? So you don't want to say, so this is the way I would apply this, but, <clears throat> pardon me, 
like that Philippians text, but my application wasn't right because it wasn't consistent with the meaning of the text. So I want you want to be careful there. Can, so you want to make sure your application fits these other four circles. Second thing, you want to communicate your application. You don't want to communicate your application as meaning instead of your applied wisdom. Right? If the text means this, this is what I like to ask people in counseling. Do you think then we could apply this this way? What? I'm inviting them into the process. It's a conversation. We're talking about wisdom. And so that's important as well. That's practical theology. Okay. Let me give you some key questions for the counselor to ask when counseling a text. Let's do three. First, have I understood the meaning clear enough to explain it in simple terms? If you can't explain it simply, you probably haven't studied it long enough. Right, so you don't want to sound complicated. Charles Swindoll says, I think it's Charles Swindoll, that says a f- mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. Right, so if you, and that same thing with counseling, if you can't explain it simple, don't think that they're understanding it either. Second thing, uh, I love Rick Warren. He said, I love this statement he made. He said, um, Some people think they're deep when in reality they're just muddy. I think it's another great quote, right? So we don't want to be muddy. We don't want to be misty. So we want to be able to talk about it simply. Have I drawn a clear line between the then, which is meaning, and the now, which is significance? We call that bridge building, right? Have I made a clear bridge? between the then and the now? And the last question, have I created good homework for this counselee that clearly helps teach the text both now and in the future? All right, for our remaining couple of minutes, which we just have a few, we want to look at the rest of these notes and we're just reading over them. That's this is just meant as a simple example. One of many examples we've already given you. This is just one I've written for you so you can go back and look at. So our example is Philippians 4.13. Right? So we've got a counselee here. They're having marriage problems. She comes to you for counseling. He's wanting a divorce. Things are not going well. And you're thinking, boy, she needs to some hope and encouragement. So should I use Philippians 4.13 for this lady? And if I use it, how can I use it? Now, what is Philippians 4.13? Some of you may have memorized it. Yes, whoever said that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was Courtney. That is Ignite coming to the rescue. So, what's the fundamental truth of this text? By the power, it's all written there for you. By the power of Paul's union in Christ, he can be content in every situation regardless of the inherent difficulties. Paul's contentment is not based upon sheer willpower, 
but instead it is based upon the power of Christ in him. Now, I did a lot of work to come up with that statement, but that's how I would describe the fundamental truth or the timeless truth for you folks that have been in that class. Well, what is the relationship between the what the text means and my lady here who's in the middle of marriage difficulties? Well, let's we put it in a statement. Paul, who was in a tough circumstance in which it would have been easy to not be content, just like my counselee is also in a tough circumstance where contentment would not be easy. Right? So I think we found a, we found a parallel way to consider it. Next question. What do these verses reveal about God, who he is or what he does? Well, Christ provides her with strength in this incredibly difficult circumstance. Why? Because that's what Christ does. He provides everybody with strength in that way. Well, what do these verses reveal about people, me, my counselee, and people in general? Well, her contentment is not based upon her own willpower. Her contentment by the power of Christ who strengthens her, her, pardon me, her contentment is provided what? By the power of Christ who strengthens her. Next question. And again, we're just working through these because you've heard all this information. So what should I resolve to do in response to these verses or passage? What is explicit in the text? What is implicit? What looks wise as a result of the passage's meaning? Here's my answer. She can be thankful for the strength Christ provides and go to Christ in prayer, demonstrating her dependency upon it. Well, how does this passage help me in loving God or loving my neighbor? Her love and trust for God can grow because God has provided her strength to endure the difficulty. She can also focus on demonstrating Christ's love to her spouse through the strength that Christ provides to her. Right, so the I can do all things through Christ doesn't mean that if she pushes the right buttons, she'll get her husband back. Right, it simply means she can be content even with a husband who's sinning against her and who may divorce her. It, so, right, you've probably, like me, heard that text in all kinds of ways. We're playing champion Christian today. Let's go win. We can do all things through Christ. We got this, kids. And they blow you out. Well, what happened? Did Christ not show up? Or did you just misunderstand that verse? Right, so we want to make sure. That's easy one to pick on, right? We want to make sure that we're doing that well with a particular person. Hey, let's go to page 107. All right. Notice on 107 and 108, this is a worksheet for you. The... There's a meaning set of questions. You say, oh, we've seen all of these. Yes, I've just stuck them in one worksheet so it's easy for you. These are the questions that I suggested to you. If you ask these questions, you'll be able to understand the meaning. Then you have significance and application below that. If you'll turn on page 108, there's one more application question. We probably should have done better on the way we put that in. 
Then look, we have a we have communicating this passage. So here's another step. What are ways that I can express the meaning and application of this passage in ways that are clearly understood? Right. So as I prepare to talk to my counselee or to teach a class or to teach, preach, any of those things, I ask myself, are there clear ways, are there clear examples, <clears throat> are there clear illustrations? Is there something that I should use to best communicate this simply? Right. So I'm pressing in on myself to say, are you going to, how can you be a better communicator with meaning and application? Look at the next two questions. It says questions to ask when you're considering how to communicate a text. The first one is, are there hard terms or concepts that need to be explained? So explain those. Again, it could be through an illustration, an application, or it could be through multiple ways. Second one, are there common illustrations that fit this passage that might shed light on what the passage means? So we want to work on communicating the passage. Final thing, here are a set of questions that will help you develop homework from the same passage. Are there portions of the passage that if heard and obeyed will help the counselee put to practice the meaning and significance? Are there portions of the text that could or should be memorized? Before or after presenting the text, I want to have the counselee write what he understands the passage to mean and his own implications, what just introduces him to the text. Once the counselee has implications consistent with the meaning of the text, then have him track his progress during a specific time period, living consistent with it. What applies to your thinking, conduct, attitude, affections, loves, and desires? And then look for specific principles in the text. Determine how you can highlight those, maybe using the virtues of this passage. Here's an example. Write as many creative ways as you can to imagine to live consistent with that virtue in the following categories. Family, work, neighborhood, church, community. Right? That's just one example. But you're looking at it and you're saying, so what can I do? What can he do or she do to apply it? So that's just a final worksheet that gives you one handy way uh, to be able to hopefully be faithful in a text. Okay, it's 5.30. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for a busy, full, and great weekend. Thank you for a microphone that doesn't turn off every 20 minutes. Thank you for heat and air that functions, plumbing that works great, food that was fantastic, and a lot of good conversation and teaching from your word. Would we please, Lord, help us please to wisely respond to it for your name's sake. Thank you for your love and kindness in Jesus' name. Amen.